Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, listeners, excuse me, in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And um, I, I was just saying off air to this gentleman, I can't believe it, it, we, we weren't, we, we didn't even think about. Uh, getting together before the 111th episode of the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, and that's that's Mr. Stephen King, formerly of the Cranepole Society. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Sam. How are you? I can't complain. You know, it's a lovely day out in Brooklyn. I'm looking out my window right now at Brooklyn. I I sometimes uh, I, I think about you know heading over to Manhattan to do these podcasts and and elsewhere, but it, there's something about doing it right smack in the middle of Brooklyn that, that uh, feels right and special to me. So I'm happy to be joined by you. And uh, I'm in Flatbush currently, but you were raised over in Sunset Park. So if you could start there, you know, uh, uh, along with like our shameless plug, as we always like to say, tell our audience where they can find you, uh, uh, you know, go over your baseball history, your Brooklyn history, all of the above. Yeah, well, I was, I was born, born in Brooklyn, Sunset Park, in what was called St. Elizabeth's Hospital, was part of the Lutheran Medical Center, which is now, I believe, it's a Lancome. It's, it's been, you know, bought out so many other times. I, not too far from where the Brooklyn Nets have their training center on 39th Street. And I, I was, I, I, my whole family grew up there. We lived in a, a six-floor walk-up tenement that uh, my father was like the part-time super of the building and everything. So, you know, it was typical, a uh, typical Brooklyn neighborhood it was made up of all different nationalities and everything. And, you know, uh, I mean, living in, a, in when you live in a tenement and tenements down the line, so many people, so many kids are living there. It was, uh, I am, uh, I'm 60, I'll be 62 next month. So, you know, I'm talking about living, you know, growing up in the, in the early sixties over there. So, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it's one of the great things, you know, being born and raised in Brooklyn and growing up in Brooklyn. And, and you know, so the Dodgers, so if I do my math correctly, the Dodgers were never there when you uh, were alive. The Dodgers left uh, 57. I was born in 58. <laughs> so I I missed out <laughs> on that. <laughs> But but there's plenty of stories, you know. It, it it was interesting about the tension. So so you know, you were talking about um, your your dad was a huge Giants fan. How old were your brothers? Well, that's see, there's a over 20 year age difference between myself and my brothers. I, uh, my uh, I was when and my sister. I have a, a sister who she was 18 when I was born. So. Uh, so there was over a 20 year difference, but uh, my father had come to the United States from Ireland and with three brothers. And they first, they had gone to Massachusetts to Boston because there was an aunt who lived there who sponsored them to come and everything. And then uh, they stayed there for about a year or two. And then they decided to come check out what was, you know, to New York looking for work. And that was around, because my, my father came here when he was 20. So that was like 1928. And when they came down here, two of my uncles just went right back to Boston. They didn't want any part of New York. And 
my father and, and my <laughs> uncle Joe stayed. And the thing is, like, you know, they were working, and when they were in Boston back then, all they heard about was this guy called, name, whose name was Babe Ruth, who played for the Red Sox. And that was with the Yankees. And they just heard about how this guy was like this great baseball player, bigger than life and everything. So one day, my father and my uncle decide, you know what, let's go to this Yankee stadium and let's go see what this, who this Babe Ruth guy is. So they take a train ride from, from Brooklyn. They, they were living on Butler Street, Hawk Slope. So they hop on the IRT and they head out to, to the Bronx. And when they get there, they see Yankee Stadium and there's nobody around. And they're like, well, what's going on? I thought they told us there was baseball here and uh, everything. As they walk around, they meet a, a cop who was on a beat down there. And they're asking him, they said, you know, when is the baseball game? And he said, no, the Yankees? No, the Yankees are on the road. He says, we want to see a baseball game. You go on the other side of this bridge at the polo grounds. The Giants are playing today. And they're like, so now, I mean, these are two two guys, greenhorns. Well, you know, they don't know this. What? How many baseball teams do you have here? And the cops say, oh, we got the Yankees, we got the Giants, and then in Brooklyn, you got the Dodgers. And they're like, oh, Brooklyn, that's where we're from. And now they're starting to say, all right. So they decide to go to the polo grounds. And they go there, and the Giants are playing. They, they buy couple of tickets in the grandstand. And this is like around, I say, 1929, 1930. And they see this guy on the field, small guy, but like he, he looked like he was in charge of things, you know, he was running things. So my father's asking, I says, who's that, who's that guy, the older guy that's, that's out there? That's, he goes, they said, oh, it's McGraw. He said, McGraw? So yeah, John McGraw. He runs the team. He runs the Giants. And my father and my uncle look at each other like, wait a minute, they got an Irishman running things around here. What kind? Wow, this is like the best. This is, you know, huh. Usually, you know, back then, you know, they, it was right. well, that was at the time when signs were no Irish need apply, all Irish and dogs keep off the grass. And they find the one place where the guy running the baseball team is an Irishman. So right away they fell in love with watching the Giants. And even though they – we were living in Brooklyn, and even when when you know my father had met my mother and my my uncle met my aunt and they my my aunt and uncle lived in Flatbush and we lived in uh, in Sunset Park. They were still Giants fans. They weren't. There was no way that they were leaving their allegiance to to McGraw's Giants to the, to the Brooklyn Dodgers, even though I mean the Dodgers were the local one. They were a local team. That's that's amazing. Uh... And in in that, something that I wanted to ask you and talk about, uh, if you can surmise in any fashion, just based off of, you know, being born in 58 and, and, and grow and, and, and it, you know, there's so many other places to go as to the fact that you grew up in Sunset Park, your parents didn't leave Brooklyn, but I want to get to that in another time. Um, in terms of, of this, like, like, you know, you always hear about the Brooklyn faithful and, and the Dodgers, and and even though I, you know, you hear that obviously there were Yankee fans and Giants fans uh, scattered around. What what do you think the breakdown really was like, uh, based off of the stories you heard from both your your siblings and your dad? There weren't that many Giants fans in Brooklyn. I mean, I think my father and my uncle, and maybe a few more. It was mostly Dodger, but there was a lot of Yankee fans. 
because, you know, back then the Yankees had a lot of Italian-American players, parts of Brooklyn, Bensonhurst and uh, Dyker Heights like that were, you know, heavily Italian neighborhoods. Most of those fans were Yankee fans, but you had DiMaggio, Lazari, uh, Yogi Berra, uh, you know, you had all mm-hmm. uh, Italian-American right. yeah. players, and they gravitated to them. I mean, it's the same way my father gravitated towards the Giants, and John McGraw was the, the manager. So, you know, it, and in Brooklyn, you know, for the Dodger fans, you know, especially like after 47 when, when Jackie Robinson broke in and, and uh, integrated the game, now you were bringing in, you know, African Americans, and it was more of a it was more of an ethnic, uh, say, uh, more social socially ethnic at the Dodger games and at Ebbets Field than maybe it was like I don't know at Yankee Stadium or at uh, the Polo Grounds. Right. But it's so it, like it always Yankee seems Stadium. Like, I mean, it always seems like what you hear about Yankee Stadium was that it was a straight shot up on the four train from Wall Street. It always got a lot of the the buttoned up people. Like like the old saying goes, you know, rooting for the Yankees was like rooting for U.S. Steel. Right. It's and and the Giants were like this uptown. All you know, the uptown. Now back then, I mean, it wasn't. you had. Like I mean, Horace Stone owning the team, and they were you know pretty well off people, but the Dodgers just seemed like you know the you know I mean you had guys like Dixie Walker, the People's Church, you know you had these were they were like <laughs> that's the kind of team they were, they were more of like a that like a community team, a team that this uh, like the community because you know Brooklyn has always thought of itself. I know this growing, I know it now. I work I work in downtown Brooklyn. Brooklyn is like its own entity. I mean, I remember always growing up, all I always heard was, you know, Brooklyn is the fourth largest city in America, you know, and see, I mean, and Brooklyn was its own city until it joined it with the, the other four boroughs. And it, Brooklyn always seems that it's like, it's always its own entity. It's always separate. And I think that that's how it was, you know, having their own baseball team. I mean, the Yankees played in the Bronx, but they weren't the Bronx Yankees. They were the New York Yankees. The Giants played in Manhattan, but they weren't the Manhattan Giants. They were the New York Giants. And I see it today with the, in basketball when the Nets moved to Brooklyn. They're not the New York Nets. They're the Brooklyn Nets, and they wear Brooklyn on their jersey. So the, I, I look at the Brooklyn Nets, and I think this is probably what even, even at home. Some way. Even, even at home. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they've embraced Brooklyn, and I think that this is what what happens to the uh, you know, and this was with the Dodgers. They embraced the borough of Brooklyn because the borough embraced them tremendously. Yeah, and and that's the kind of articles that I come across, you know, and I, I need to do a, a better job of kind of looking up the Giants articles that I, I have access to. Um, but you know, just recently I came across an article from like May of 1941 talking about. You know how base, you know, especially 1941. Uh, even though the Yankees ended up beating them, everybody says that Brooklyn was the center of the baseball world that year. Uh, even though you had obviously uh, DiMaggio hitting 56 games in a row, you had Ted Williams hitting over 400. Uh, but over the course of the year, uh, uh, the Dodgers and not just the Dodgers, but but the the fans of the Dodgers and and at Ebbets Field. Uh, you know, you look at this article that I I have and you see these photos that you probably have to call the New York times up to, to get those specific photos if you wanted. But 
it's it's remarkable uh, to see it because you know they take I think one of the photos is of Cookie Lavagello, uh, and then you you have and I can't get to the uh, the tab fast enough here, but oh here we go yeah there we go you know there Brooklyn was a very colorful bunch you know and not to say that there weren't colorful characters. Uh, at, at Yankee Stadium at certain points and colorful characters at, at uh, polo grounds. But you see it. I mean, they have one photo of what looks like a guy in, like, safari jungle gear, uh, like he's, you know, <laughs> Dr. Livingston, I presume. Uh, I, and, and I probably can't even uh, uh, legally display this anywhere unless I give the New York Times uh, credit, probably. I don't know. But, you know, these, these photos aren't readily searchable on on the the google on google uh these are just within i'm looking at a photocopy of the actual article from and if i can find the date published may 11th 1941 uh brooklyn was a very colorful place to live uh, you know when you look at at the the ballparks as well i mean the polo grounds was an expansive park as was Yankee Stadium. I mean, when Yankee Stadium was built, it was like, you know, one of the, the seven wonders of the world because it was, I think it was the first ballpark that was all steel and, and concrete. And then you had these little polo grounds, that, um, uh, Field rather, that held maybe about 30,000 people and everybody was like on top of each other, You're right, right on top of the field. And I think the other thing you have too is with a lot of the Dodger players, they lived in Brooklyn. They lived in the neighborhoods. They were part of, of, of the neighborhood. They were they were Brooklynites. They <laughs> you know, this is this is where they lived. This is where they played and this is where they lived. Yeah. It it, it is true, you know, and and I I did hear a story about Bobby Thompson, uh specifically after he hit the home run. That, you know, the, the, and and I don't think it was necessarily the case for everybody. Um, I'd, I'd like to know what, you know, what did, where did the Yankee players live? Where did the, the Giants players live? But what I heard about Bobby Thompson was that he was from Staten Island. His entire family was from Staten Island. And that, you know, at the end of the day, after getting paid to be on some television show, he just took a cab to the Staten Island ferry, took the ferry across, and then they surprised him with, a, with you know, a party. His entire neighborhood surprised him with a party for, for – you know, winning the pennant. I can verify that story. I I was fortunate enough to meet both Bobby Thompson, and uh, you know, and I met him at a at an event. And I live on Staten Island now, and I live in the neighborhood where Bobby Thompson grew up. He lived on Flag Place, and he told me that story. He said when all when everything after he hit the home run, and after all, like you say, like the interviews and everything and people outside just going absolutely crazy. By the time he got out of the polar grounds, like people were, it was, they were gone. And he just, he just took the, he took a cab, got back on, got on the ferry. And there's a train that runs through Staten Island. And he got off at the stop that's right by my house. And from there, I think somebody <laughs> picked him up wow. and they took him home and his mother made dinner. And I mean, you know, that, that was, that was the extent uh, of, 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 his celebrating like the, the the shot heard around the world. It, so, it, so it was really just, it was just him and his family. It was just him and his mother. Yeah. It wasn't even the block. Yeah, no, he, you know, he he he, he, I, he was he's born and raised here on Staten Island. He's 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 like the folk hero of Staten Island. He's, uh, you know, and and when he told me that, and I said, wait a minute, I said, 
did you take the train to the Duncan Hill station? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, I, I live right over there. He goes, oh, so you know the neighborhood. You know, <laughs> it was, it was just strange. I'm talking to this That's man right. who hit with one of the most famous home runs in the history of baseball that my father rooted for this guy. And like, you know, yes. all he talked about was Bobby Thompson, the Scotsman doing this. And I get to meet him. Disgusting. And I'm talking to him, and and I live in the neighborhood where he was, and telling him, oh, you, and he goes, yeah, yeah, oh, you're over there, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. Do you know this guy? And it was just like after a while, like, when I was on my way home, I was taking the ferry home myself, and I'm sitting there thinking, I mean, this is like surreal. I just met Bobby Thompson yeah. and Ralph Branca together. They both signed a baseball for me. I sat through an hour of Q and A with these guys. I spoke to Bobby. Thompson. We both, you know, he lives where I live now. And I'm like, this is like, this is weird. <laughs> it's like, you you yeah. couldn't explain it. Like, you know, if you, if you were writing a movie or a book or a novel, this people wouldn't believe it. Yeah. You know, they would say, ah, come on, this guy's really stretching it. But uh, it was true. <laughs> That's amazing. And and if you could elaborate, too, on, on uh, some of the stuff you talked about before we, we got on about um, – uh, that that shot heard around the world, and and your dad in the building you lived in. He, you know, it was funny because he he was working when they played the game, and my father worked. He was a uh, he was an armed guard for now it's Citibank, but back then it was First National Citibank, and they were in they were transporting money and stuff from the Federal Reserve because they worked on Wall Street and they would and they had the radio on and he couldn't get out to the polo grounds. But back then down on wall street, you had like all these bars and every, you know, like the Blarney stones and stuff like that. So as soon as the shift was over, he ran right into that Blarney stone and they, they had it on, it was on TV and he watched it there. And, and I remember they had it where, where, the, where we lived, we lived on 49th street and fourth Avenue, sunset park. It was tenement building. And it was a six, six or seven floor walk up. It was a big building. And the majority of the people there were all Dodger fans. And most of my, you know, they were my father's friends and stuff like that. And what they would do like every year, like, you know, when the, I mean, the Dodgers would win a pennant, they would hang funeral crepe over our door. Like, you know, the Giants are dead. Well, in Brooklyn, how the Giants is dead. And they would put this funeral crepe up. My father couldn't wait to get home to go get that funeral crate and put it up over the guy next door's door and bang it <laughs> on his door saying, you know, the, the, the Dodgers is dead, oh, the Dodgers is dead, you know. And that was the, 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 the rivalry that they had then. It was like, I mean, it was, I don't know if there was any other type of rivalry in the city the way it was with the, I mean, it's Dodgers and Giants, two National League teams, and the only thing they ever agreed on that giant fans and Dodger fans agreed on is they hated the Yankees. You know, that was like, <laughs> right. It would be right. like, you know, three, three, you know, three countries, you know, at war and the two countries. So wait a minute, you know, that's our, let's, let's align and go after this one, one enemy that we have. in common. <laughs> and that's, that's how, that's, that's how it was. And it was funny because my brothers were Dodger fans, but you know, they were, I mean, my father was telling me a story that the first time my brothers went, they were going to Ebbets Field. And I said, like I said, we lived on 49th Street, 4th Avenue. And so it's the, back then it was, they used to call it the 4th Avenue local, the R-Line. 
So they would get on the train, three of them, and they'd get to DeKalb Avenue. And my father would look at them and say, okay, listen, you guys, you're going to go that way because you're going to Ebbets Field. I got to take the train going this way because I'm going to the polo ground. And they would split off. (laughs) 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 He goes, now I got to get back on the train and keep going uptown. You guys get over here. Now you're going to take the D train. You're going to go over here. You get the best for there. Back then it was the Colville line. And you're going to get off there mm. and you're going to go to Abbotsfield. And that's what they did. And he says, I'll see you all later. And he'd meet his friends and they would go, they would go to the polo grounds. That's the one thing in um, life that I kind of, re- that I regret that I never got to see the polo grounds. I used to kid with my father. I said, you know, the Mets played there in 62. You didn't take me. I was four years old. He goes, he goes, you know, you never took me to the polo grounds. He goes, well, two years later, you went to Shea Stadium. Because when I was six, that's the first time I went to a baseball game. We went to Shea Stadium. So, you know, we do need to talk about the legacy a little bit. You know, it's it's funny when you're talking about Dodger fans and Giant fans hating each other and only being able to come together on hating the, the Yankees. Uh you, you know, I, I always had Greg Prince on here of Faith and Fear and Flushing as the, the legacy chat. Uh, um, and, you know, he's also a Giants fan uh, or, or from a grandfather perspective. He likes to call it his grandfather team, right. uh, the New York Giants. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I, but of course, you know, you, you uh, came into the uh, online internet public eye, if you will, uh, as a Mets blogger. So, if you could talk a little bit about the, the legacy and how Giant fans and Dodger fans, even though I will always say I think there's more Giant fans who stayed with the Giants than Dodger fans who stayed with the Dodgers, and we can get into that as well, but talk about being a Mets fan and, and the legacy of National League Baseball in New York. Well, you know, it, it, the thing was, I remember like my father telling me, though, even though when the, when the Giants and Dodgers both left, I think it was WINS would play these reenactment games from out in California where they would, they would, you know, do it off a teletype. And what I remember is when, when you know, like I said, the first time I, I went to a game was in 1964 Shea Stadium. And my father still had the, the, that giant blood in him. You know, he was still as, as a mad and as pissed off as he was that they left. He still had, you know, that giant phantom in him. The thing that kind of eased it a bit was when the Mets came in, when Joan Payson was the owner. She was a minority owner of the Giants. In fact, she was the lone dissenting vote in the move from Pologrounds from Manhattan to San Francisco. So that kind of brought him in a little more because he's like, okay, you know, Mrs. Payson, they, they would, they would, you know, with the giants and all that. And then the cap, which had the, the blue with the orange and white, which was exactly similar, exactly what the giant cap was. And now this is another argument I get in with friends of mine who are Yankee fans. The Yankees did not invent that interlocking and why the giants did. And the Yankees took it from the giants. So, you know, they get, you know, a lot of these Yankee fans mm-hmm. and, and announcers, they wax poetic about the intellect. That, that came from John McGraw and the New York Giants, not the Yankees. Oh, yeah, that, the Yankees that, was around, that was around first. And, 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 and yeah, that, you're absolutely right. That was around first. I'm not sure when they first used the interlocking NY for, on the Yankees, but 
that specific interlocking NY, I think, was was like a, a an emblem created for Tiffany and Co. and something uh, maybe having to do right. with the fire department, something along those lines. And basically, it, so so when the whenever the Yankees took it, it clearly was something new altogether. Long after the Giants had had their interlocking NY. I always thought that the Yankees took it as as a try to a slap to the Giants when they threw them out of the polo grounds and had them build their own place in the front. Well, that might was, that might be, that, and you're you, yeah yeah no, you're absolutely right. That might be, uh, and I'll see if I can like hunt down the exact original time. But you, they might. It, what I had always heard was that it was originally a non-sports emblem that was for like made by Tiffany and Company. Uh, and possibly for some fallen fire department guy, uh, but 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 the Yankees probably, as you say, they took that from wherever it originated as a stick to the Giants. Yeah, and because you know, I you know I tell people look you know as Casey used to say you can look it up the Giants that was this that was this <laughs> they, they were the ones that originated. You know, becoming, you know, going to Shea Stadium now in 1964. Now, I, one thing I remember, even I was a kid, but my father would look at Shea Stadium and say, you know, this is where the Giants were supposed to play. The Giants were supposed to, you know, when when O'Malley wanted his, his ballpark built on, on Atlantic Avenue in Flatbush and Robert Moses said, no, there's no way. He says, I'm building this park out in Queens. And O'Malley said, so if I'm going to move to Queens, I might as well go to California. But Horace Stoneham was looking at it like saying, hmm, wait a minute. You know, uh, you know, it's a brand new stadium. It's in mm-hmm. Queens. And he was still thinking about staying until O'Malley kind of forced him and, you know, told well, him. Well, he, he knew he couldn't, he really couldn't survive without the, the regional rivalry. Yeah. I don't think, you know, it just helped, that, helped his cause. Yeah. I don't think the commissioner would have let him go because at that time, you know, the furthest west was St. Louis. So you weren't going to have teams just fly out to Los Angeles and, 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 and play games and then come back. He needed, an, he needed a rival. And, you know, the thing is, too, you know, back then is that the polo grounds was kind of, it's kind of falling apart. The neighborhood was changing. Things, you know, the, a lot of things that changed was this was, you know, post-World War II, and there was prosperity, and the suburbs emerged, especially after... Moses built the Bell Parkway and then Jones Beach and all that. It kind of was the exodus from the city to the suburbs. And, and you, you know was, something something about. Sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say something no. something that I heard about uh, uh, Robert Moses with the the highways to Long Beach was that knowing that the white people were going out to the suburbs, he made the bridges shorter to make sure that buses from the city couldn't get out there. That's something I, mean, I heard. I'm not sure if it's true, yeah. but. I, I could believe it because, you know, I mean, that was, that was the whole thing. It was like, you know, the neighborhood, the polo grounds, the upper Manhattan was changing. Uh, Flatbush was changing. There was a lot of white flight from Brooklyn, from Manhattan, like people moving to the suburbs especially Brooklynites moving out to Long Island, Nassau County. And it kind of left, you know, the, they, and they, 
and they weren't going to be driving back and forth. And part of O'Malley's plan was to build that where the Barclays Center is now is where he wanted to build that ballpark because the Long Island Railroad was underneath, figuring people would just hop on a train, come to his games, get back on the train, and go back to the suburbs. And, and he you wanted know. to do it with parking, too. You know, I mean, part of oh, his yeah. plan was to have plenty of parking because, you know, yeah. he, he hated well, the fact still- that Ebbets Field had 700 spots. <laughs> Well, there's still no parking down there. <laughs> right, yeah, no, no of course not, not anymore. Not anymore. Right. Uh, no, but, uh, maybe, no. there, maybe there would have been, probably not the what, you know, the parking that he got in Los Angeles was insurmountable. Well, you know, think about it. At that time, that was people going out to the suburbs, you know, automobiles, everybody was on highways and this and that. Now today, it's more people into mass transit. That's why the Barclays does so well. Every train stops there. It's, it, you know, I mean, I only Never work 10 minutes away from, I work 10 minutes away from there. I go to, we go to a lot of the net games. I go with my son. He works on wall street. It's three stops on the train for him. It's a 10 minute walk for me. We meet, we go to the game. Then we just get back on the train, get downtown. We take the ferry and we're home. So it is more convenient to use mass transit now than it would be to drive there. But, and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of how it comes full circle. Right, right, exactly. I mean, that, it, and it's funny because I always talk about speaking of full circle, how in the 90s, uh, from a ballpark perspective, it was all about retro. And that kind of also mirrored what, what you know, other architect, uh, architects and architecture were doing from a, from a residential perspective and sometimes even from a commercial office perspective, where they were renovating these old factory buildings using what was there as the skeletal framework to, to renovate, you know, inside and around. Um, and I always say that they, they had such, there was such a lack of foresight with, you know, destroying Penn Station, with, with getting rid of Ebbets Field, that had Ebbets Field lasted from any structural perspective, uh, they would have incorporated, if it had been something like the 90s, they would have incorporated the facade of Ebbets Field into an apartment building design, as opposed to just oh, completely yeah. tearing it down and putting up a monstrosity of a brick building. Well, you know, even like, say if the Dodgers stayed and were there, I mean, I remember in, in Boston, for years they talked about tearing down Fenway Park. They said it's been here forever, it's, you know, it's fallen down. It needs work. It needs this. And then when John Henry bought the Red Sox, the first thing they did was they said, no, we can renovate Wrigley Field, uh, uh, Fenway. Same way the Ricketts have renovated Wrigley Field. Now think about it. Say the Dodgers, say they, they don't leave. And we, they still have the team in Brooklyn. Can you imagine a renovated uh, Ebbets Field today, retrofitted the way like right. what they do in Fenway <laughs> and how they do in Wrigley? Amazing. That would be like the, that would be the jewel the jewel of baseball. It would be like you yeah. you know, it would be like the place that everybody would want to be. It would be the place and think about the surrounding area where you would make like a baseball village with like how when you go to Wrigley Field, there's bars, restaurants all around there. A neighborhood with that. The way that how the neighborhood now is it, down there, how it's changed. Nobody saw that coming. Everybody was seeing, like, neglect and blight and thought that was it. And now here we are, say, what, 60 years later, and now it's it's come back again to where it's probably even 
better now than it was even then. Yeah, you could totally argue that. I mean, you know, Crown Heights over there is great. There's also the college that has plenty of new buildings right around the the uh, the apartment building, and the apartment building is still a little blighted. And I don't believe it was ever ever public housing. I think it's always been private facility, and I think to this day it, it still is. But over at the Polo Grounds, uh, that is currently still, and, and it always has been uh, public grounds. Yeah. And think about that area too, how that's, you know, how that's been built up. And the Polo Grounds would, be, would have been another uh, national monument. But, right. Then, you know, it, it, it was always just like, it, it, it. do you think, here's my question for you. If the Polo Grounds had stayed and if somehow they had made, they'd figured out how to, how to be around, do you think they would have been forced to get rid of that center field and maybe like, like do something with the stands so it's not 250 feet down the line and it's not, five, you know, close to 500 feet into the center field. Like you sometimes wonder whether that could have lasted such a, you know, because obviously every ballpark nowadays still has different dimensions, uh, but they're not as, as drastic as something like the Polo Grounds. Yeah, they, they would have closed it off and put a craft beer thing up there or something, you know. They would have had some kind of like, a, <laughs> right. you know how at City Field and in in Center Field, you have all the, the rush, you have all the, the concessions and stuff like that. They would probably have something like that if it was still around today. But, you know, it, it, I tell you one thing, players wouldn't have to walk all the way to Center Field to get to that clubhouse. I'm pretty sure they would have found a way. To right, get around of course. That. Exactly. You know, that was that that was one of the, one of the weird features of the polo grounds. When you when you you know when you see pictures and you look out from home plate out to center field and that the Chesterfield sign and everything, you know, you think of Willie Mays making that catch off thick words, and then you think about like on top that was like the clubhouse, and after yeah, every game, crazy. the Giants had to, had to go from so they had to go from the dugout, come out of the dugout, walk through the field. Then go up the stairs and then go into their clubhouse. And most of the time, that was the way a lot of, like, they, they decided that the easiest way for the most people to get out as safely as possible was to let them spread out on the field as they walked, you know, and, and, and just open up center field and let everybody walk out that way. You know, oh, yeah, it's I, it's I, pretty I, remarkable to think back in that day. I, I remember that at old Yankee Stadium when we would go, we used to go every year, the kids in the neighborhood, we would go to bat day at Yankee State. And I don't know why, but I think they always played the Cleveland Indians because I started becoming a fan of Rocky Colavito because I saw, I think I said, every time I come here, they're playing the Indians oh, wow. and I see Rocky Colavito. But and, I you, and you weren't rooting for the Yankees, you were going to root for the other no, team. No, <laughs> for the Indians. Go Tribe. Exactly. You know, I just wanted to freak back. That's all I was there for. Exactly, but exactly. I remember after the game, you would walk, you would walk down and go on the on the, the the foul territory, the warning track, and walk like right out, right out the right field line, and you'd be right on on River Avenue, and you get onto the the train, the four train, take you downtown, take you the D train, take you back into Brooklyn, and that's that's how it went. That's how it was. I mean, now today it's like you you can't even. You go to City Field, you you can't even go down by the rail during batting practice to watch it. They you know they, they throw you out of there right. with all the security. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a different thing. It's unbelievable to think of how intimate everything was. Like you know, you, and, and whether 
uh, obviously you hear about the actual intimacy from, from the, the uh, dimensions perspective in Evans Field, but that also went to how close the stands were. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the pictures, you can see that, you know, the way they, they're like right on top of the action. And what did it hold? 30, 32,000 people? So, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and these were people and they, with they would, they would call, were, they would, yeah, and they would call games that would have 35,000, 36,000 because everybody would be yeah. just in the, in the rafters. Yeah. And I mean, this, this was, you know, a, a, a very passionate fan base too. So if you're the visiting team, you, you know, you, you have to be intimidated. I would say that had to be a very strong home field advantage for the Dodgers playing there. Yes, except for Stan, the man usual. I mean, he, you the know, and, got, and it's just, I always loved in Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. And I always loved that, the that element of the story. Yeah. You know, that's like the one thing I remember, I, I, you know, with, with Mets fans, because the Mets fan is, is a combination of the giant Dodger fan. And I remember as, as a kid watching Willie Stargell, when Willie Stargell would come to Shea Stadium, he was adored by Mets fans. We respected. It was a there was a huge respect for for Willie Stargell because of the way he he played. He was the leader. He he just had like something. There was like an aura about this guy, and and the Mets fans applauded that because they said, you know, this is a guy who, you know, even though he's beating our heads in, but there's something about this guy. It's you know, and I think later on, I always felt like with. With Chipper Jones, a lot of the Mets always yeah. I kind of had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah, I said, well, you got to understand. I I was I've been down like that third base line with him. Guy loved coming to Shea Stadium. He loved coming to New York. He loved playing the Mets. He because the vibe he got playing in New York was the complete opposite of what you would get in Atlanta. I mean, you can't compare the fan bases. So he was he was charged up coming here because he knew. That he can that he could give it to the Mets fan, like he can go back and forth. He had that personality, still does, you know. And I think that's kind of the difference between, you know, the National League fan and, and Yankee fans, American League fans. The National League fans back then, they you know they respected the opponent, especially the opponent who played right, played like the right way, as they would say. You know, that's always a cliche. Plays the game the right way, but they were like guys like you say, Stan Musial, like Willie Stargell. You watch these guys and Hank Aaron when he would come in. People wanted to go to the ballpark to see these guys, even though, um, you know, back then in, in the '60s, mid, early mid '60s, the Mets, you know, were losing 90, 100 games. But you wanted to see these plays because you could tell that these were great ball plays, and they were great guys too. They were leaders, and there was something about watching them, you know, and especially when the Giants and the Dodgers would come to town. I, I mean. I remember the first time going to a Giants-Mets game. You know, they, they would always make sure that the Giants and Dodgers came in on the weekend because then you could get 55000 a game, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And the Friday night games, well, it was like a carnival. And they had marching bands going through the stands, and the place was packed. And even though you, the, the majority of people there now were Mets fans, there was still, like, these holdovers. I know, like, my father would circle the calendar, like when the Giants were coming in, that we had to get to one of these games. 
because he wanted to still see, I mean, he still wanted to see Willie Mays. So that was like the thing, you know, I still want to see Willie Mays. Uh, and then, you, you know, you start, you start, you know, thinking about what would have been if, if, if they would have stayed here and you would have saw Willie Mays for his whole career. But, and then even with the Dodgers, my brothers would take me when the Dodgers would come in and it'd be the same atmosphere, instead of 50,000. So, and again, we were now, now you were Mets fans, but you still had that in your heart. There was a, piece of your heart that still held on to the Dodgers or the Giants and you knew the Mets weren't very good so even if the Giants won or the Dodgers won you still left the ballpark feeling good because you know you saw you saw you saw the team that you grew up with they left but now here they're coming back now the team that you're rooting for who's replaced them is playing them so you kind of got the best of both worlds back then in the 60s when 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 the Dodgers and Giants started to come back to, to play the Mets and Shea. So your first game was 1964. Did you ever see uh, Sandy Koufax pitch at Shea Stadium? I didn't. I never saw Koufax pitch. First game I went to, they played the Cardinals. Bob Gibson pitched. Well, that's that's pretty that upset, amazing. And the thing that upset me the most was Ed Cranepool was not in the starting lineup that day. So, <laughs> who, who is my favorite Met of all time? And he was right, not in the lineup that day. So I was kind of bummed out about that, but then when I had an ice cream later, it it uh, it helped me. I I got I kind of got over it because you know <laughs> uh, that that kind of helped. But I was very, I was kind of sad when I get there and I'm like you know was was Cranepool he wasn't playing first base that day, and I told him that I, I have four and who guys, was uh, I had who the, was I had uh jeez I forget by I have to look I I don't I don't. I don't know. But I 1964 know it against the Cardinals. What day was it? Yeah, it was a Saturday. It was, it was like one of the first Saturday games I think they played at Shea. It was like one of the against first the weekend games. Right. Let's see. Yeah, go ahead. I had the blog for years, the Eddie Cranepool Society, because he was my favorite Met. And when I finally did get to meet him, I, you know, I told him all this, and he was looking at me like it was crazy. And a funny thing was, I was with them. I was. I'll tell you two funny, two funny stories with with, with Eddie Cranepool. First one, I go. We're at we're at a bloggers' night, and it was one of these alumni games, and they were bringing back a lot of the guys from the '69 Mets. So Jerry Grody was another one of my favorites. So I'm talking to Eddie Cranepool, and he says, "Come on, I want." Goes, oh, "I'm going to introduce you to to Jerry Grody," and I'm like, "Oh man, this is great." So we go over. I meet Grody. He goes. Eddie Cranepool says to me, he goes, tell him who your favorite Met is of all time. I said, oh, this guy right here, Eddie Cranepool, he's the best. Jerry Grody looks at him. He goes, are you out of your mind? He's like, what are you? He goes, of all, I said, Jerry, you're number two, okay? <laughs> you're number two. And he got such a kick, they got such a kick out of it. They were like, you know. Now, another story, you remember they used to have the, the, the Queens Baseball Convention at McFadden's? Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. the first one they did, I was a moderator for uh, a Q&A with Eddie with Cranepool. And we're in the back of McFadden's, and he had just gotten a new phone. And he was looking for a phone number. And he was having, he goes, he goes, can you do me a favor? He goes, can you see if you could find this number? And I'm looking in the phone. And I'm looking, and I said, what's the, what name? And he, I said, and I'm looking, wait a minute, Willie Mays. You got Willie Mays' phone number? He goes, yeah, me and Willie, you know, he was my teammate. Me and him were friends. I said, oh, can we call him? He goes, no, you can't call him. They just can't call the guy. 
I said, but Smoothie, I go, he goes, we can't call. He's like, he's yelling at me. He goes, can you just find this phone number for me? I said, all right, all right, take it easy. <laughs> and all I'm thinking to myself, I got Willie Mays' phone number. And he won't call him, let me talk to him. <laughs> so I think I found the game, by the way. Oh, you did? Uh, and and if we're talking 1964, you said, right? Yeah. Okay, so... The, I, and I opened up another game, but considering that Sadeki or what's his name, let's see, um, Ray Sadeki won, and he and and Bob Gibson did not pitch in this game. So those are the only two oh. games that would make sense. The only the only Saturday games in 1964 are July 11th, 1964, which Bob Gibson did not pitch in, or May 9th, 1964. Um, Tim Harkness. Uh, started at first base. The the uh, Cardinals won five to one with Bob Gibson pitching a complete game, and Ed Crankpool did pinch hit once. Did not stay in the game. Yeah. He, he did not get a hit. That's got to be the game because I know it had the Shea had just opened, and I know it was like we we, we my brother had gotten tickets from where he worked. And you know, back then they used to have the season tickets. They were they were paper. They used to come in a book, and you would go and just rip off the pages <laughs> that you needed and bring them. And that's what I, I remember going. And you know, the thing was too. You know, Shea was the first ballpark with with the escalators. No baseball, no park had escalators. They were, you know they had the ramp, but they were the first ones to put have an escalator. It, if you think about it, it was a state-of-the-art ballpark back then, which is, you know, right. when you think about the later years. It was state-of-the-art, and I, I remember the first time going there. But if you look at that season when the Dodgers and Giants come in and look at the attendance, they, they had to be like sellouts for these games because people couldn't wait to finally, you know, you figure from, from 58 to 66 or six, seven years, you haven't, seen, you haven't been able to see a Giants or a Dodger, game, Dodger team. And here that you know now they're coming back to New York. Uh, that's that had to be. I mean, I don't remember that well, but I got to think if yeah. you were a Giant fan or a Dodger fan, that would well, be like the biggest thrill. It looks like the first time they ever came in, and let me double check this. Scrolling down, looks like the first time. Yes, the first time they ever came in, the Giants was, and again, I think the Giants were the first of the between the two to come in. The Mets won Friday, May 29th. They won 4-2. Stallard won. Stanford lost. 55,000 uh, and 62 people. 55,062 people yeah. went to that game. The next game, which was a Saturday, maybe a day game, and maybe it was hot because it only got 38,472, but the Mets won that game 6-2. Mm. Fisher won. Herbal lost. Uh, the Dodgers, they won the first game against the Dodgers on Friday, June 5th. 54,790 went to that game. Um, and, and, yes, it was a night game. And uh, the Saturday game was a day game, 34,000. But the, the uh, Dodgers won the next game. But the win was 8 nothing. Cisco won. Moeller lost. For the Dodgers, and and at that wow. point the the uh, at that point the Mets were sixteen and thirty three. <laughs> <laughs> a robust sixteen and thirty three. Robust well, sixteen yeah. and thirty three. Yeah, no, they were, I mean, they, they were losing losses. 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. At some point they had an eight-game losing streak thereafter and many losing streaks thereafter. That was just the way it went back then. And so, you know, you're talking about Shea Stadium. I mean, for the Dodgers and Giants fans, who were probably a little still bitter about the fact that they didn't have their own ballpark for those teams, what, what, what was the feeling like with the state-of-the-art ballpark? You know, you got back then when Shea opens up, like I said, this is like the first one has escalators. It has, it has a restaurant in it. Remember the diamond club they had, you know, and you had to be dressed to the nines to get into the diamond club. You couldn't just walk in. And back then people used to get dressed to go to games. It was like, you know, not today, you just whatever you wear when you go. But when you, you know, they had the big, and they had the scoreboard, that huge, that big scoreboard was like, no one saw a scoreboard like this where it had messages and everything. And at the same time, you have the World's Fair just across the park. So you could go to a game. Like, say you on, we would go, like, on a Saturday, and the day games, I think you should start, like, at 2 o'clock. So you go to a day game on a Saturday. And back then, games were 2 hours, 2.10, 2.15. When that game was over, you would walk over past the subway on that ramp that would take you where now is where, like, where the tennis center is. You walk through there. And now you were at the World's Fair. So if you're, I'm a kid, I'm six, seven years old. And I'm thinking this is, this is the way you live life every day. You know, you go to a baseball game for a couple, and then after that you go to the World's Fair and you see, the, uh, you see all these, uh, the, the, the carousel of progress and all this stuff, all this futuristic stuff. And you think, well, this is how you live. This is, you know, and it's not until you get a little bit older and you realize, ah, oh, it's, it's not always baseball and World's Fair. <laughs> <laughs> and not even the tennis uh, can make it interact like that. I mean, nobody has a World's Fair anymore. You know, there's really not a World's Fair. It's, it's just like, I guess the idea is that at the time it was talking about all the new technologies and everything is specialized now. You know, everything is, is basically, everybody's having their own World's Fair. Apple's having their own World's Fair. Google's having their own World's Fair. Samsung is having their own World's Fair. Everybody's having their own uh, uh, coming out party. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were, there were things that you saw then that, you, you know, everything was futuristic and it was something, it was different and, and you know, it was more, it was very international. You could, it would, the World's Fair was kind of like how Epcot is in Disney World. It was just like, just all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I guess because there's a, an Epcot, you really don't have a World's Fair because now people just, you know, you can, you can go all over the world whenever you want. <laughs> well, maybe not now, but. <laughs> right. But well, back when, back when things were different, you know. But no, but yeah. the internet, what you're talking about, yeah. the internet, like, you know, you, you and I, you and I, in many ways, like I was just looking at that article, all of a sudden I can be in, on May 11th, 1941, somebody trying to, to uh, explain the Dodger fan to the rest of the world. And you know what was interesting about it, and I haven't finished the article completely yet, but it, it's a, uh, a late, here, I, again, I don't have the, ta- I, the tab is in something else. Let me pull that up. Um, the, but it's a, it's a, in 1941, it's a lady writer. And where, where is the article? Here we go. Come on, <laughs> but but it, it's 
it's interesting to think about that. Here we go. Um, Anita Brenner. Uh, you know, when you hear about the boys club that was beat writers at the time, here is a woman explaining the Dodger fan to anybody reading the New York Times or at least reading the sports section that day. Hmm. There were, back then, there were not many or any, I don't think, women that were covering the team. I mean, these were right. guys. And, and, you know, and this is. I'd like to find out more about Anita and see, you know, what the way, and it's very, what's great is she sets the scene of eight men at a radio near a, a, uh, at like some stationery store or a cigar candy store or whatever in Brooklyn. And, and, and she sets the scene of them all depressed, all surrounded, surrounding the radio. And then you go, you know, what's going on? Why is, is it something in Europe? And it's like, no, nah, the Dodgers. <laughs> the losers. <Yeah. laughs> you're, That's you're, how she opens the article. This, this is real life in death. Yeah, the Dodgers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, they always, you know, you always hear the, the, the stories how you could walk down the streets of Brooklyn during the Dodger game and everybody have the radio on and you could walk down the mm-hmm. whole, mm-hmm. you could walk every block and, and not miss a pitch because everybody had the, the game on the radio. And, you know, it, it Back then, it was that's what you had. I mean, when you think about like the heyday of of New York baseball, back that, that that era, like forty-seven to fifty-seven, football wasn't the big sport that it that it is now. Basketball, basketball is just professional basketball is just about starting. I mean, the NBA started like in forty-seven to forty-eight. Hockey was, you know, I mean, the Rangers did well in in, in Madison Square Garden, but baseball was was the king of baseball. Boxing and horse racing were the three big sports. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and especially baseball. I don't know if there's even anybody who lived in Brooklyn that I, maybe you didn't understand the game, but if somebody asked you, you know, what do you think? Oh, the Do- everybody knew the Dodgers. Everybody knew who the Dodgers were. Right. And you know, it, it, that's something I think that you, you don't see that today. I mean. There's more negativity mm-hmm. about everything today than, than than anything else, but uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And that, you know, and it's funny too because when the Brooklyn Cyclones, their first season, right, the 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 like now they're going to be the uh, supposedly they're going to be the double A team for the Mets, but they were the New York Penn League team. I remember when that when MCU Park opened the first time going there, and I remember as a kid that was Steeplechase Park. And then when I was growing up, like in the seventies, that was a place you wanted to stay out of. It was it wasn't the greatest place. <laughs> and now there's this ballpark there, and there were people, older people at these at these games when I would go, like in the beginning, and they'd be in tears because they couldn't have, they didn't think they'd ever see baseball again in Brooklyn. And when they, even though yeah, it was, on it was on any professional a, level, yeah, it, even though it was a low A, uh, short season team they still had Brooklyn on their uniform and it, it just, it brought out emotion in so many people and they've been pretty successful down there too. They draw very well down there. And yeah. it's, it's a, it, you can't beat it. I mean, you're sitting on the, you know, you're on Coney Island in the summertime, the, the, the breeze coming off the Atlantic ocean. Ooh, what's better stunts, than that, right? That's the one thing though, is, is, you know, obviously you, you kind of had to, uh, build it that way because if you build it, uh, you know, with your back 
against the beach, which you don't want it. You want that view too. Uh, yeah. But it, it completely it, it completely stunts any power coming from from most uh, prospects. <laughs> it's true. There's no home runs that are hit in that place. But what would you rather see? A view of the Atlantic Ocean or a view of Mermaid Avenue? I mean, <laughs> no, you're, you're, I mean, well, that's the interesting thing is that I guess you'd also have a, a view of Brooklyn, the skyline. Uh, at some point, you'd probably be able to see a little bit of Manhattan in the background. I mean, I, I'm not saying that. Like the thing about it is, is that you'd have the complete opposite problem. Uh, balls would be flying out at, at a crazy rate. Yeah, but I, and you know, it's. And this, this, I've gone there like in nights in August when it's like ninety to ninety ninety five degrees during the day, and you go go down there and you need to put a, like a sweatshirt on or something because it, yeah. and it's uh, yeah. <laughs> and you can see like and you can see like somebody hits a fly ball and you think oh, that's out of here and that ball just hangs up there. I mean, yeah, you know, it, the ball does not fly out of MCU Park, but uh, I mean it's still. It's it's still a great a great experience, great ball for. Well, probably there'll be won't be anything being played there uh, this year, but you know hopefully right. by next year you know we'll be able to go back to games and stuff like that. But uh, hopefully, it's, hopefully it's, it's and, a nice place. Yeah, and and it's it, well, we could go down the rabbit hole as to what it means for the middle uh, of the of the higher levels, the middle like you said, the double A to be moving there uh, and talking about the power. I mean, what does that mean for, for prospects uh, of the power nature when they get to double A Brooklyn, if that's what it ends up being? Um, that's a little concerning in some fashion, but you know, we don't need to go down that, that rabbit hole right now. I, I'd be remiss. <laughs> I'd, I'd be remiss. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I'd be remiss uh, as we close in on the hour. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about, you know, you mentioned growing up in the 70s, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about, you know, your family as well as you growing up in Brooklyn during those years. Now, now if you could start your childhood in, in Brooklyn, if you could start by explaining in some fashion why your parents didn't follow suit with some other uh, white families. Uh, in the flight that that did occur in the sixties. Well, our, my father had friends, both my parents had friends that were not Irish. We, I mean, they had friends who were Polish. They had friends who were from. Uh, they had there was, there was one family from they were they were from Czechoslovakia. They were good friends with them, and like my father, I would go to the racetrack with him. Go like to Aqueduct Racetrack. And he hung out with a lot of West Indian guys. So, <laughs> and he always had told us, he said, listen, because I didn't, because we didn't come here to live with, you know, just Irish people. We came to America because you want to live with other people. You learn from other people. And my father was not a suburbs guy. He, he was a city. He, he was a guy who grew up on a farm. But once he moved to New York, he was a city guy. He, he was more of a concrete than grass guy. And there was no way that we were going to move out to Long Island, that he was going to take this Long Island Railroad to go to work when the 4th Avenue local was on the corner and got him to Wall Street to his job in like 20 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so right. That wasn't happening. That wasn't happening. And then as I got, you know, when I was old, I, you know, it's funny. 
when I was a kid, we couldn't wait when school was over. We nobody went on vacation. There was no like you know the way it is now. I mean, you know, my when my kids were small, every summer, okay, where are we going? We're going to go to Florida. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. When you were a kid, you just wanted to be in the schoolyard all day. And I remember a few times, like when my father would say, "Oh, we're going to go visit your, you know, your uncles in in up in Boston." I'm like, well, "I have to go. I don't want to go. I'm going to miss out on what's going on here. I don't want to go." And it, you know, it would be the strangest thing. And then a couple of times they went, and, my, and I just stayed home. And my my brother, he worked, but he he when he was still living at home, I said, "Just give me the key. I'll take care of myself." And when he comes home, we'll have dinner, and that's what we did. I, nobody wanted to go away. I mean, you wanted to be, that's where you wanted to be. You wanted to, to be in that schoolyard. You wanted to be, you know, you know, my father would say, he goes, you're a subway right away from everything, museums, ballparks, uh, theaters. You know, where are you going to go? You're gonna, he says, we're gonna, you're going to live in Long Island, what, cut grass every weekend? Uh, he goes, I'm not doing that. I got, I'm going to the racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> and that, we, he and it was funny because you know, family members they would they would move like to the south, and he, he didn't even want to go visit. Said, what the hell? I want to go there. He never understood why anybody would leave. Why would anybody leave Brooklyn? Why would anybody leave New York City? He's like, well, well, we don't. What are you going to find that you don't have? <laughs> You're not going to find what you have here. And but you know what's interesting even, about it? Uh, in some parts of those those places, you know what you have? You have views of New York City. Yeah, that was the you know. I remember, like as a kid, when you took the subway, and it didn't it it it, it didn't say to Manhattan, to Coney it said to city from city. That was the city. Manhattan was the city. It's going the train's either going towards the city or it's coming back from the city. And you know, even even with me, I I you know, when my wife and I we got married, I lived we lived in Bay Ridge for nine years, and we decided we were going to buy a house and. I, we looked in Bay Ridge, and this is 26, 27 years ago, and the houses then were really expensive. And I said, "Well, oh, we're gonna have to. You know, let's go look in Diker Heights. Let's look over here. Let's look over there." And it, my sister-in-law had moved to Staten Island, and I was like, mm. "And then she was telling us, you know, there's a lot of nice houses here, and this and that." So my wife, you know, she was, you know, we were going back and forth with it. And I said, "All right, look," I said, "I'll make the move over there." We got to live near the bridge. I have to see that bridge because that bridge leads me to civilization. (laughs) (laughs) I said, that bridge, on the other side of that bridge is civilization. I said, I have to see it. So from where I live, I have a train on the corner that takes me to the ferry. And in 20 minutes, I'm in Manhattan. I I can go down Father Capadano Boulevard right onto the bridge, and it leads me into Bay Ridge in about five minutes. So people ask me where, I li- where I'm from. I tell them I'm from Brooklyn. Now, you didn't ask me where I live. I'm from Brooklyn, but I live in Staten Island. But I'm not from Staten right. Island. I'm from Brooklyn. I'll always be from Brooklyn. And that's why I, where I, for, uh, I work for the city, and we had an, our office was on Worth Street in Manhattan for years. And the owner of the building decided he wanted to take the building back over and make condominiums out of it. So we had to move. And when I found out we were moving to Livingston Street, I said, oh, look at this. I'm going back to Brooklyn. So I'm in Brooklyn all the time. So that's why I still say I'm from Brooklyn because 
I spend more time in Brooklyn than I do on Staten Island. Yeah. Yeah, and you live right, uh, and I'm sorry, you worked right downtown in uh, uh, yeah. where 215 Montague Street used to be, and the Dodger offices yeah, yeah. used to be, uh, where, yeah. where Jackie I, I, Robinson, of course, a, was signed his famous contract. That's a TD bank now, but in the lobby, they have the... It's, yeah, it's a different building. Where, yeah, where Jackie Robinson signed his contract. Plus, you know, the other yeah, thing I, I think I, I mean, I think it was like a, about like a seven eight. It was a seven eight story, of, uh, like office building that was at that yeah. corner. But now you have some some building that I think was built in the '60s. So that that building, maybe you know, when the Dodgers left, it lost some of its value as Brooklyn's value went down. Maybe some, they just decided let's tear it down and build this simplistic bank. Yeah, it's just a regular like office building with a TD bank in the lobby of it. But, you know, another, another thing that gives away where I'm from is when I start to speak. I, 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 the Brooklyn accent, I'm pretty <laughs> sure, is dying out because uh, I don't think any of the I, – I know, like, where I am downtown, they have all these new buildings, apartment buildings and stuff going up. And, you know, I, I, I don't think – it's funny, too, like when people tell me, oh, I'm going down to Red Hook. I'm going to the Gowanus. I'm like – and then when you go down there, and I'm like, wow. I can't believe what's going on down here because yeah, those, you know those were places we weren't we weren't allowed to go to because <laughs> you know but <laughs> when I go down there and I'm like I said well how come nobody has I don't hear nobody speaking like me down here everybody has like some kind of Midwestern twang to them I said, and I'm like <laughs> I said one one of the the, the things I that I'm sorry about is I think the Brooklyn accent is uh, is is gone I I think I might be the last of a dying breed. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's funny because you see some of those like old black and white clips, maybe even on like the Ken Burns baseball documentary, and it's some Brooklyn kid playing baseball talking just when they, they were ever able to record sound in like, you know, the early 30s. Uh, and, and he has this, he's like, yeah, we're going to go play over in the field right now, you know, like, like he's got this really <laughs> thick Brooklyn accent like newsies, right? And, and, and you think about even if even if the, these uh, Midwesterners who are now living down there and also living in Park Slope and all these different places, even if they're raising kids and they don't move to Montclair, New Jersey, or Westchester or wherever, uh, uh, their kids are probably, like you said, it, it, most likely those kids are not going to have grown up around that accent, meaning they're not no. going to have the accent whatsoever as well. Even like with my kids, like you know, sometimes if I'm if I'm excited to say something, and you know, I let out, I guess, what are you guys doing? They look at me like because I have two, <laughs> two children who, are, you know, college educated. They look at me and say, "What did you just say?" I said, "Oh, I'm sorry." I said, "What are, what are you, what are you children doing?" Like, did you say you guys? <laughs> I said, "Yeah." I said, "You know, it comes out every now and then." I said, "You know." It's like I, like sometimes too. Like I tell them, I said, anybody check that burla downstairs, see if it's working. And they're like, what? The burla? Is that turlet running? You know. <laughs> I said, that's you know. And they look at me like, what? I said, I ah, forget it. I said, you, I said, I said, I, I've spoiled you too. I said, you don't, you don't, you don't right. get it. You don't, you don't speak the lingo. I told them. <laughs> and I said, it's not always how it is. You know, I said, the only ones who do it, you know, my friends who we grew up together, you know, when we start talking and everything, like my kids and their kids look at each other. What the hell? What are these guys? What kind of dialect is this? What are they talking about? 
That's just the way it goes, you know. Every generation now, you guys have it better than we did, you know. We spoil yeah. you, we spoil you, and and uh, you know, here we are now. So so we're we're coming to the end of the show, Stephen. And if uh, before you give your final word, uh, as we like to do on these podcasts, uh, you know, if you could tell the audience where they could find you uh, uh, to to you know chat away a little bit about Brooklyn and beyond. Well, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter too much, I think. So, <laughs> but I'm on there, and you can find me at at Cranepool, K-R-A-N-E-P-O-O-L on Cranepool, and you can look me up on Facebook. You know, I'm under my name Stephen Keen, and I'm I'm on there. You'll see my my profile picture of myself and Ed Cranepool on there. I've had that up there for years. I'm not going to change it. Eddie's my guy. <laughs> exactly. Well, I appreciate it so much for uh, you to come on here and talk some Brooklyn with me. And I'll tell you, we'd probably be able to fill another hour or two, but obviously both <laughs> you and I have to get going. So I, I greatly appreciate it uh, today coming on and talking some Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants and uh, and some Brooklyn and beyond, as I'd like to say. So thank you all for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, we will be back on Friday for the 112th episode, and we're going to have Mr. Carl Erskine on the podcast. So that's always exciting to uh, talk to the legends himself. So thank you again. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us. Uh, take care, everybody. Have a good afternoon. And be safe and healthy, of course. <laughs>